Uh, there's a theologian named Broughton Knox. I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I said that right, but it's okay. Uh, he was brought aboard as a young chaplain in the British Navy uh, right before D-Day, and they're going to take off uh, for the invasion of Normandy. And he said that on the ship there was a peculiar uh, way people were acting. All the sailors were acting um, very, very well together. They had great, like a great time together. Uh, there was, he said this, that the minds of all the hands on deck, uh, re- regardless of rank, so high or low, sergeant or private, right? Uh, were focused on the invasion's success and the defeat of the enemy. He said there was, you know, there's no thoughts of your own interest. There's no self. It just seemed to be we're all focused on the mission, what we're here to do, which was to invade. After the invasion, uh, the same crew, the same uh, boat, there was a change in the atmosphere of the ship. Yes, there was still friendliness. Yes, there was still um, camaraderie, you could say. But multiple sailors noted that there was a real change. I just didn't feel like we had the same fellowship. And they asked the chaplain, uh, Knox, and this is what he said. He wrote this down in his journal. Quote, during those months that preceded and followed D-Day, during those months, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness. We have ourselves, we gave ourselves to a shared activity and an objective. Once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we all do normally. So do you see what he's saying is on the way there and while they were in the battle, they all had a one fixed uh, community, one fellowship, one goal together. But after, after the war, they kind of just wasn't really, weren't really close anymore, just kind of faded away. So friendship, you see, is one thing, but true fellowship and community runs much deeper. Uh, they grip each person involved, it changes how you think, right? These people were in wartime thinking. They weren't just there for themselves. They're there for a shared purpose, the way they think and live. So could it be, and I would argue that this is a yes to this question, so I'll give you my answer, yes. Could it be that the reason why many churches have problems or lack things is because of a lack of true fellowship? That we often come with our own motives. We don't have the same goal in mind. There's mixed interests, selfish motives, and there's no true fellowship. That's why tension will exist. That's why there could be division. That's where there could be boredom. That's where there could be loneliness. Even though we're here together, those things still exist. Even amongst friendly groups of Christians, because I think of true, a lack of true biblical fellowship. So we have Christian friendship, but do we have Christian fellowship? That's the difference, right? There's a big difference there. And so we, we should realize, like, the, like this chaplain, like these men, that we are in a, a wartime life as a Christian. There is a reality of life and death, of heaven and hell, of urgency, of spiritual warfare, things that actually matter for eternity's sake. So do you find that if you've read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you see the, the church, they, just, they have fellowship, they have everything in common, there's just the church's Almost at its peak, it seems like. Like, this is the church that I want to be like. Wow, I see that. How can we all get to that point? If you've read that text, you know what I'm thinking of. But we, we think about it, and that would be, it would be odd if you follow the text that they, they have this much community. It'd be kind of strange. Why would you share this much or be doing these many things together? A collective intimacy, sharing and praying, reading together, loving one another, growing, etc. And a continued labor for the spread of the gospel. 
That's what the book of, book of Acts shows, and that's what we are Christians to do. So this is what Paul sees in Philippians. If you look at chapter 1, this is what God calls for us to do as well. That we would have a real, true fellowship, not just, over, not just with a select few people over a select few things, but real Christian fellowship with every person in the body for the work of the body, namely for Christ, for the gospel. That's what we exist for. And if a church lacks or forfeits this kind of fellowship, I think uh, we will rot from the inside out. Yes, on the outside we'll look great, but on the inside we're dead. Uh, there's decay. Um, it'll become more of a country club. There'll be teams, and then you will, we will cease to exist. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I hope you don't either. And I think this is at stake, that we should gather in such a way that we're called to gather. In Philippians, you, you remember Paul is in jail writing this letter. Uh, if you remember Acts chapter 16, we covered a little bit last time. This is how the church found it. Right? The, the first three converts were uh, Lydia, a seller of purple goods, a, uh, a slave demonic girl. So she was quite the convert there. And then you have a Philippian jailer. So this rough group was the first converse in Philippi, and Paul is writing to them. First, he reminded them of who they were in Christ. He told them that you are slaves to Christ. You were, if you look at verses one and two, you were saints in Christ, and now you are sons with Christ. And now, in today's text, Paul's going to give us three steps to grow in true Christian fellowship that those who identify as Christians can actually have. So this is our charge. This is what we should do, what we can do to have real Christian fellowship, not just friendship. So first one, very simple. Christian fellowship starts with prayer. Look at verses three and four. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I want you to see two descriptions of what Paul talks about here with prayer. Number one, first is Paul has thankful Prayer. So though Paul's in prison, he's very thankful, right? He's praying. He's in prison, but he's filled with prayer. He's not moping around. He's filled with prayer, right? Just look again at verse 3 and 4. I thank my God, making my prayer with joy. So rather than pouting, he's praying, right? If I was in jail, I don't know that I'd be praying for other people. I'd be praying certainly for myself. But who is Paul praying for? Praying for them, right? Thank God for you guys. Like, Paul, shouldn't you be praying to get out? No, I'm praying for them. So Paul's mind is so fixed on other people. It's so fixed on the Lord, it pours over into other people. His mind is fixed on the Father and the Philippians, you could say. So we are prone to pray when we're in times of sorrow. But do you ever pray for others when you're in sorrow? Well, Paul's not, that's what Paul's doing, right? He's such, such, a, such a stark contrast to how we pray. He shows the, the, the supremacy of prayer in the Christian life. That praying has not ceased because he's in prison. Rather, it actually, it grows more. That in this time, he doesn't stop and wait. He actually prays more. It grows within him, right? It's joy-filled, thankful prayers. I think Paul marries together what he commands in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, which are two simple verses, but very hard commands. Rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. Paul does both of those in prison, right? It's remarkable. This marks the, the reality of Paul's joy then is not bound to circumstances, to, to where he's at, to what's happening, to what he doesn't have. It's very clear his joy is not bound to where he is, but about who he is in Christ, right? It's very clear. 
His heart is happy in the Lord. So it's a thing that you need to think about yourself as, doesn't this reveal, and if it does, you be honest, it does to me, this reveals that I have a weakness of faith, that when I don't have the things that I want, or maybe I'm not in the place that I want to be, or, or I'm in quote-unquote jail, I'm in a place I don't want to be at, or frustrated or stuck, when my physical things change, I do not always have joy. When things get disrupted, I'm automatically annoyed. I'm not thankful. I become very much a professional complainer. I'm very good at it. And it shows that we are very fickle people. It's important to know, however, uh, what, what we like to say is, well, this job is making me complain. Or it's this person is making me jealous. Is that true? Well, the Bible would say they're not making you do anything. You are doing that, right? This is God's means to squeeze out of you, right? I'm not a scientist, but I know if you squeeze a lemon, lemon juice does come out. It's because it's what's in the lemon, what tension makes it come out, right? So when you have tension in your life, what comes out from your heart is what's really in you, right? And when Paul is being squeezed, he has thankfulness in his heart. It's often, we don't have that often because we set our minds so much on the things of the earth. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says this, is a command. To set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. So let me encourage you. Think more about things that are above where Christ is. That's where true joy comes from. It's not from things around us, but where your heart and your, your desires are at. They're fixed on Christ. Things will grow strangely dim, right? So praying more, meditating more on the word lays like a kindling and this intimacy with the Lord ignites a fire. Say, you know what? I I can actually have joy because I don't have to worry about where I'm at. If you think of many of the Psalms, a lot of times in the Psalms, David starts with, Lord, where have you been? This is awful. And then it oftentimes will tamper off into, Lord, thank you. Just thank you for your grace. They they always, they almost almost always tamper off into a a, a joy at the end because of where, where he is when he's praying. And be encouraged that a thankful heart, I believe, is essential for a Christian service. That if you don't have a heart of gratitude, that doing things for the Lord is not glorifying to the Lord, right? A, a heart of gratitude is the key that unlocks the padlock of a stale Christian life. Second, the scripture, the first, it's a, it's a thankful prayer. Notice, secondly, it's, there are various prayers. Look at verses three and four. So for all of you, then he says, for you all. So I don't think Paul was from Missouri, but in the Greek, he's saying, for y'all. This is, this, is the, this is the y'all he's saying, right? He's praying for all y'all, all of you. So think about who he's praying for. He's, he's not just praying for Lydia. He's not just praying for the jailer. He's praying for the entire gathered church, not just a select few. His prayers are so far directed away from himself he spends great time praying for all. So Paul's prayer list was just all about everybody else. It wasn't about him, though he does do that. He asked for prayer for himself later. But right now he's praying for the Philippians like crazy. Each and every member of this church is on Paul's heart, right? If you think of the Old Testament priests, what they would do is they would put stones on their, uh, on their uniform, their outfit, so to speak. They would have the names of Israel on them. So when they would go to the temple, they were bearing the names of the people before the Lord. That's what Paul is doing. In Exodus 28, verse 29, it says this, that the high priest would bear the names of all the tribes of Israel as a sacrifice. And he says this, making a 
regular remembrance before the Lord. So Paul likewise is remembering these people before the Lord. Matthew Henry said this, that the best remembrance of our friends is to remember them at the throne of grace. So think what Paul is doing. He's spending time thinking about each person in the Philippian church. He scoops them up in prayer, takes them to the Lord and just, would you please bless him? Would you do this? Would you do this? And then he puts them down, gets another one. Every single person, could be 15, could be 100, I don't know. But Paul is meticulously praying for each member of the Philippian church. This is what Jesus did in John chapter 17. He prays for every believer that would come to faith. So Jesus, if you're a Christian, he prayed for you before you were born. It's a startling reality. So let me just make it very simple. The room around you that you sit in, the people in here, this is your prayer list. This, this is it right here. Yes, we have one on the back of our bulletins. I think that's good to have one. This is primary right here. People you see every Sunday morning, this is your prayer list. They need you to pray for them. How can you, how can you be more Christ-like? Do what Jesus did. Pray for his brothers. That's, that's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. That's what you should be doing as well. Pray for every person in the room this week, not just in general, but individually. Man, I'm praying for this name, for this person, for this person, for each name. Spurgeon once said this, that the secret to prayer is secret prayer. So how do I pray more? Well, pray more. It's the secret, right? Secret prayer. The prayers of every believer for every believer is the work of God in the local church. Consider the thought that let's say, let's say that we all did this this week. That everyone prayed for everyone individually. This Sunday morning, how would you feel knowing that every single person prayed for you? What do you think would happen? And that you prayed for them, every person. You think that would, you think maybe things would change in your local church? I mean, obviously, right? Wouldn't that happen? That's what Paul is doing, right? Not just for the usual people, but for each individual. Your heart will grow in love for more people naturally. Your frustrations with them will just dissolve. Your jealousy towards them will go. Your zeal that you don't have, it really will grow. The way, when you come here to hear the word, to sing, it's kind of like priming the pump. You're warming your heart to hear it. You really will be more impacted by the word sung and heard when you come in such a way. So let me encourage you to do so. And maybe think, okay, well, what, what do I pray for? Should I just ask them? Well, yes, you can do that. Let's say you don't know. Let's say you're reading Philippians chapter one, just providentially, and you read, I don't know, to live as Christ, die as gain, chapter 21. Man, would you please be with him that he would live today like Christ is worth it? That he would know that Christ is better than life? Would you bless him today, Lord? That's how you pray. It's very simple. If it's in the word, I guarantee the people in this room need prayer for it. Guarantee it. Secondly, Christian fellowship, so it starts with prayer. Secondly, Christian fellowship is centered around the gospel. Look at verse five. So it starts with prayer, now it's centered around the gospel. This is what excited Paul most. So if you look, if you follow the sentence, Paul is thankful for them, but particularly about this, about the comrade, about the fellowship they have. Look at verse five. Because, so all this joy, all this thinking, all this praying is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul's excitement is that the Philippians are bound with him working for Christ in the gospel. That's what he's most excited about. Uh, the original word here for fellowship or partnership, yours might say, 
uh, is the word koinonia. You probably have heard that word. It means fellowship, right? It means uh, koinonia, community. You hear that word in there, community. That's what it means. So it's this mysterious kind of threefolded bond, right? Paul, the Philippians, and Christ. We're all bound together. That's what Paul is saying. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 says, a threefold cord, excuse me, is not easily broken. That's what Paul is talking about. We are bound together in Christ, right? And this bond is an eternal one. In 1 John, the, the word says that we have fellowship with God and with each other. It's very simple. So the sweet nature of Christian th- fellowship is meant not to look at each other, but to together look at Christ. And by doing so, you will look to each other in a loving way. It's easy how that works, that we don't come in thinking, well, look at that guy. Rather, we both come in looking to Jesus. And then we're automatically together. We just, we form more together because we're looking at Christ together. We both gaze upon him. You see that Paul says they are partners in the gospel. This is with Paul. This means the Philippian church, they have one banner, uh, one product, you can say, one thing. The Philippian church is about one thing, and that is about the gospel. That's what a true church is about, isn't it? They should be marked by, man, they are gospel people. They don't offer much else, really anything else. Yes, they do X, Y, and Z, but man, they love the gospel. It's very clear. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm glad to call you partners, right? And as a church, our one thing is the main thing. It's what heaven sings about. It's what God planned before the foundation of the world. It's so important that we want to be about the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul outlines the gospel very simply, which is this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So that is the gospel, that Christ died for sinners, rose on the third day. If we repent and trust in Christ, we have eternal life, right? And what's interesting is Christians, we believe this is what changes people, right? Do you guys like reading headlines? Usually the, the news, they either make you excited or angry, right? It's just a headline. Well, what's the headline? It's an announcement, right? This happened. Well, as Christians, we believe that a headline actually makes people reconcile to God. It's Jesus died for sinners. Okay. So what changes people is a gospel proclamation. It's a headline, right? The gospel is the power of God, Paul says. So we've partnered together to proclaim a headline. We, we can't change anybody. We can't force people into a box. We say, repent and trust Christ. You are a sinner. God reconciles us by Christ. Repent and trust. And that's what we preach, right? We preach a headline. We preach a news announcement. And we really believe that changes people. But think about when did the Philippians start their partnership? Look at verse five again. Paul says, from the first day. So ever since their conversion, when Paul was there in Acts 16, right? Until now, when Paul wrote this letter, he said, you've you've been partners with me since then until now. So they've been all about the gospel since day one. And you see this in Acts 16, when Lydia houses Paul immediately after her conversion, the jailer brings Paul and Silas after they are freed from their chains. He brings them to their house. He treats their wounds. And he lays dinner before them, right? So there's obviously this partnership, this love for one another. And Paul says this continues even until now. Their zeal for Christ, it didn't fizzle out. It wasn't a flash in a pan. Real conversion doesn't just fizzle out, right? 
It continues, it presses on. So this is evidence of their love for Christ. So as a Christian, you need to ask yourself, do I have a real zeal? Has it, have I just fizzled out? Well, I used to like Christ, now I just kind of like other things. And yeah, he's there, but it's not really my main thing anymore. That's not how a believer thinks. They have a zeal for the gospel, right? So is, is the gospel spreading? Is people believing it? Are people being converted? Is that a, is that a primary desire for you? Well, it's for the Philippians, right? From the first day, man, that's, all, that's what we want. We want conversions. We want the gospel to go abroad. Is that your zeal as well? And I think the reason why we don't find great fellowship oftentimes in churches is because we wrestle with this idea. A lot of Christians go to church because they want to find friendship and fellowship. Is that wrong? I don't really think so. I think it's okay to say, man, I want to find Christian brothers. Good, you should. You shouldn't be a lone Christian. You will fall apart. But oftentimes we think fellowship is simply uh, maybe drinking coffee, um, eating, and talking about funny things like what happened five years ago or my uncle's cousin's cat got hit by a car or whatever you're talking about. It's okay to talk about those things, to have those talks, to talk about whatever. Those things are okay. But that's not Christian fellowship in the biblical sense. Why? Well, because the world can do the exact same thing. We would say, well, that's not Christian fellowship at all, right? Do you see the difference? So there has to be a difference. Well, what is that difference? Well, Paul makes it very clear. It's not surface level, earthly things. Again, friendship is good, but Paul's saying, you want something different? You want fellowship, right? You want koinonia. You want real fellowship. That is a happy time. But how do you experience that? How do you do that? Where does that come from? Well, Paul says very simply, it's for your partnership in the gospel. And if we don't do this, uh, then, then I'll tell you, I think, how we can do it. Uh, what I am prone to do is, and I'll give you an example. At FedEx, where I work, I am prone to talk to the same people about the same things, about the same time. I just do. I can almost tell you what I'm going to say to Kevin every day when I talk to him. I can almost tell you. How was your stop count yesterday? How was your route? See ya. Do you guys do that here? One question, two questions, done. I do that sometimes, right? How do we fight that? Well, go beyond surface level to the core of who someone is. And the core of who someone is is who they are as a person, which is, are they a Christian? Yes. Then you have more in common with them than your closest relative if they're a Christian. Isn't that good news? So what should you say? Hey, uh, how can I pray for you this week? Uh, what are you reading in the word? What, is, what has God taught you this week? What did you think of the sermon? It was okay. <laughs> can you pray for me? You ever do that? We make it awkward because we're scared to be Spiritual people, if we are spiritual people, that's the most real thing about you. Don't you see that? So maybe you could join a Bible study, ask questions there. Man, I just don't understand this text. I don't really feel about that. Ask someone that you're talking to about their conversion. Hey, how did you come to Christ? When did it happen? What was it like? Talk about the concerns you have of the spiritual state of your children or your grandchildren. Could you pray for me with them? Don't you think that would grow fellowship? These things are simple things. Why? Because these are the real things that matter. In reality, we like to have a sunny day, but if my soul is sick, I don't give a rip about the weather. I care about my soul is sick. I need someone to pray for me. That's what I care about. That's what you care about, right? 
So let me encourage you to be that person and they will do it back to you. Maybe partner with those who go door to door in the coming weeks. Volunteer and impact Vacation Bible School. Don't just be there. Be there. I'm going to talk to one person. I'm going to talk to one parent on Parents Day about the gospel. I'm going to talk to one kid and get his name and pray for him every week. Be intentional. You could actually do these things because they will, those people have souls that will last forever. You could help impact that. Don't you see that partnership in the gospel is so much deeper than just surface level? Don't you want that? Isn't that beautiful? That's what Paul is saying we have. Because we're Christian, we have something that the unbeliever does not have. We have fellowship with God. Non-Christians do not have this. They cannot talk to God. They have no way to go to him, right? Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says that the unbeliever is hostile to God. They cannot please him. You can't. Thus, God needs to reconcile God and man. Because we can't do it, right? So we believe 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one meter between God and man, God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the one that bridges the gap, right? He takes our sins on himself. He gives us his righteousness by faith, right? We turn from our sins, put our trust in Christ. God can legally look at you and say, counted righteous. But God, I'm a sinner. Exactly. Right? And then we have fellowship with God. You fellowship with, with one another here. That's the good news of the gospel. The God-man bringing us to the Father. And now you can pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. He, 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 will, he delights to hear you now because you're one of his own. And you can have fellowship with those here as well. Thirdly and lastly, Christian fellowship has confidence in God. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Many people, me included, do not finish things that they start. Whether it's a New Year's resolution that ended on January 3rd, maybe a workout routine, a new practice, a new diet. You're saying no to Oreos, but you go to Walmart, and what do you know? You got Oreos once again. Whatever it may be, we often do not finish things that we start. But let me leave you with some very good news that does not apply to God. He does not leave things undone. He always finishes what he starts. And in verse 6 is a huge example. Look at, look at that again. That he who began, he will bring it to completion. This is perhaps one of the strongest, the clearest verses of persevering to the end as a Christian. Namely, that Christians can have real assurance that you won't fall away from the faith in the last day, that you're not going to just fall apart. Paul can look at the Philippians, sinners though they are, with deep joy and say, I am confident about you because I'm confident in God. Isn't that good news? His deep joy because of that reason. So the first two reasons are really the uh, building on top of this. This is Paul's bedrock right here. Is I have confidence in God. I have deep joy in you because of my confidence in God. That God is almighty, that God is sovereign, that God will bring this to pass. He will complete a good work in you. And this text, though, should be kind of strange. So who started the Philippian church? For sure it was Paul, if I recall, right? right? Paul went there, Paul and Silas, they preached, they talked to people, they prayed, they did the hard work. Sounds like Paul, Paul doesn't even mention himself. He's that God began the good work in you, 
It wasn't even me. It was just, it was, just, it was the Lord, right? That God began this work of conversion. God opened the hearts of Lydia and the jailer. God sent Paul. God gave them the new birth. God removed the hostility. God gave them faith. Over and over, Paul is saying, God began the good work in you. He will bring it to completion. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. The same thing is that it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in Christ. So it's been granted to you. God's granted you faith to believe in Christ. Paul's very clear here. His confidence is in God that God will sustain the Philippians, that he will produce fruit in their lives, that he will sustain their faith, carry them to the end, that he will perfect them. Let me put this very provocatively and hopefully biblically, that'll be helpful for you to understand in a simple way. God has never and never will lose a true Christian. No Christian will ever go to hell. In hell, there are no people who used to be Christians. That does not exist in the Bible. Rather, only true believers persevere to the end, right? You will persevere because God preserves you. Do you catch that? Paul's not saying you're so strong, you're okay. That's not what he's saying. God will bring you. God will carry you through. His confidence isn't in them holding on. It's in God holding on to them. Whenever we walk little kids across the street, um, they like to run. My kids are very fast. Um, it is not their little tiny grip on my hand that keeps them. They would fall. It is my grip on them that keeps them despite their failing hand or their fickle hand. Do you see how the Lord holds you despite your, your weakness in faith? That's the good news of the gospel. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, says almost the exact same thing, that by God's power you are being guarded so God keeps you by his power. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. John chapter 10, verse 28 and 30. Philippians 1, 6. These are all sweet verses to talk about the assurance of faith. If you are in Christ, you will persevere to the end. Because God is unchanging despite your changing. And the unchanging God changes you. Right? Isn't that good news? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. If one dear saint of God had perished, so might all. If one of the covenant ones be lost, so may all. If God hath loved me once, he will love me forever. That's the good news that you have, that Christ will not let you go. So the only question that must be answered then is this. Is the Christian faith that I claim to, is that a work of man or of self? Or is that a work of God truly in my heart? Am I of the Lord? Is, is, my, is my Christianity just my creation? I just... I walk it, but I don't have any real faith or did God really work in my heart? There's a story of an old pastor named D.L. Moody who was once met on a Chicago street where he was pastoring uh, by a drunk man who exclaimed to him, aren't you Mr. Moody? Why, I am one of your converts. And D.L. Moody said in reply, that must be true because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. So we can make false converts, right? As alarming as that is, it really is true. People who don't repent of their sins and don't put their trust in Christ, if there is no holiness in their walk, there is no spiritual life in their heart. You can be sure of that. If God has worked grace in your heart, you will love Christ, right? You are spiritually alive. You have new affections for him. You love him. You cannot stand your sin. You long for him. You have a changed life. Is that true about you? 
But rest assured that if you are in Christ, God has given you new life. He will complete it, friends. He will bring you to the end. Though you stumble forward, he will bring you to the end. Jesus did not die and raise again just to lose you at the last minute. He would not be a good savior. He would be a failure. Do you believe that? He will keep you. God will not let you fall because his name is at stake. If you fall away, go to hell, and then I guess God's not a good savior. He will not let that happen. If you're in Christ, you can rest. So Paul's confidence in the Philippians is actually in God, in God's power, in God's preservation, in God's work, that God will carry me, change me, and sustain me. If you've ever been to a room of a painter or an artist or a three-year-old, you look at things and go, what in the world are you doing in there? Like, what is that, right? Well, once someone asked Michelangelo the same thing. If you looked at uh, his, his, his David sculpture, that famous sculpture of David, right? This is a famous quote. I don't, I don't know if he actually said it or not. There's debate about this, but irrelevant. Uh, that they asked him, hey, how did you do that? Like, how did you carve that thing? And he said, I just chipped away everything that wasn't David. Well, that's the good news of what God is doing in you is God is chipping away everything in you that is not like Christ. That you are, you are being changed, you are being formed, your heart is being molded. He's chiseling everything away so you look more like Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. That is why God is working in you to transform you to be more like his son. And all of us believers are works in progress. You can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Because that's true. Even on our best day or on our worst day, God is at work in you despite you because he is faithful to complete it he's faithful to complete you at the day of christ and you can rest assured that everyone in this room who is a believer has the same reality he's working in them and that one and that one i hope he's working in that one right that's the reality fellowship grows when you think this way that God's making you and those around you more into the image of Christ. So Paul, just to recap, has described for us three steps. That Christian fellowship starts with prayer, it is centered around the gospel, and it has confidence in God. The question I want to leave you with is, how might you begin to act and think in such a way that Christian fellowship here would ignite? Let's pray.